All right, everybody, welcome. We did not meet last week, so it seems like it has uh, been quite a long time for us to be together. But uh, we are getting down to the end. We've got about uh, seven or eight weeks to go, and we still have two more parts to get to. But I kept telling you this first part was the, the long part. But uh, we may well finish that uh, this evening and then go to go to part two. But page 19 in your notebooks, page 19. And if you do not have a notebook or need some notes, we have some extras over here. I can get them for you. Anybody need? Anybody got yours? All right, page uh, page 19. And I'm going to do a quick, quick, honest review of the beginning of the Great Commission that Jesus gave to his first followers. At the end of his earthly ministry, his final words were what we call the Great Commission. And then the Great Commission begins in Acts chapter 2. So from pages 17 and 18, now 19, we've been going through the, the book of Acts, looking at that book, the fifth book in your New Testament, the Acts of the Apostles, how it is they went about carrying out, launching and carrying out that mission that Jesus gave to them, and that extends to us as well. That started in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem. But Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. You get to Acts chapter 8 and you find a persecution has broken out in Jerusalem. So the Christians are scattered and it says specifically that they were scattered into Judea and Samaria. And you find the gospel then, Christians going into those areas and the gospel going going with them and people coming to Christ. And then as you get to Acts chapter 11, you find the gospel extending still further. Just a cup, one chapter prior, Acts chapter 10, the gospel has been given to a Gentile named Cornelius. And then it takes a, a very important turn, this advance of the mission and the gospel message in Acts 11 and verse 19. It says, now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Now, the persecution in connection with Stephen. That was Acts chapter 7, and that started a persecution in Jerusalem that did, as I said, took Christians out of the city of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. So that's now in Acts 11 what it's referring back to. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch telling the message, but notice this next phrase, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, went to Antioch and began to speak to Gentiles also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Now, that's actually a major turning point. Acts chapter 11 and verse 20, that you have the, you have the gospel going directly now to, to Gentiles. And this happened, uh, because, uh, this happened because some people went to a city called Antioch. And it says the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. This city that they went to, to preach the gospel to Gentiles, Antioch, 
became a very important city and a very important church as the story in the book of Acts moves, moves forward. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was behind only Rome itself and Alexandria, Egypt. So third largest city in the empire now has the gospel to the Gentiles who were, who were there. And the church in Jerusalem heard about this, uh, this advance of the gospel into this Gentile territory in Antioch. And they sent, according to Acts 11, the church in Jerusalem sent some representatives to check out what was going on. And one of those who was sent was a guy named Barnabas. So Barnabas goes from Jerusalem to Antioch to see what the Lord is, is doing there. And he saw that there was a genuine move of the Lord there in people coming coming to Christ. And then Barnabas says, I need help with this. There's a genuine move going on. A number of people are coming to Christ. This church is established and it's, it's swelling. And so he seeks out Saul. Saul of Tarsus, who has been converted. And he, later we will know him as Paul. But he seeks Saul out and they then become partners in ministry beginning in this city in Antioch. And verse 26 of Acts chapter 11 says that it's in that city, Antioch, where they were first given the name Christians. They were first called Christians in Antioch. Now the reason that's important is because, remember I read to you just a minute ago, that at first they were giving the, the gospel to Jews only. And now you have these people that go to Antioch and give it the gospel directly to Gentiles. And it's there that they adopt their own name. So there in Antioch, Christianity is clearly now something distinct and different from Judaism. For the first time, that becomes completely apparent because one, it's got these Gentiles now and they're going by a different name. They're going by the name, they're going by the name Christians, which creates some antagonism as things move forward about these Gentiles coming in and, uh, and Jews. Uh, and unbelieving Jews in particular, but also believing Jews, having a hard time, so much so that there's a council in Acts chapter 15 about what do we do about all these Gentiles who are coming in. All right, so that is that is a, a pivotal passage in Acts chapter 11 where the gospel goes to, <clears throat> to Antioch and to these Gentiles, and Christians are, are known by that name for the first time. And then in chapter 12, <clears throat> in Acts chapter 12, you have recorded there the execution of James, the, the brother of John. <clears throat> and James is, is killed, martyred for his faith. And then you have the story of Peter being imprisoned. People are praying for him. He's released from prison. So both of these uh, original apostles are mentioned there. Both of them were prominent. James was uh, uh, prominent in the church in Jerusalem. He's, he's martyred. Peter, prominent, obviously. And the reason that Luke, who wrote Acts, mentions these two in Acts chapter 12 is just to give what happened to them. What happened to James? James was martyred. What happened to Peter? He continued his ministry. But the reason that was important is because now in Acts chapter 13, it's going to focus almost exclusively on Paul. 
And from this point on, Acts chapter 13 to the end of the book, it's now going to be Paul and Paul and Barnabas and then Paul and Silas and their missionary journeys. So that brings you then to page page 19. And on page 19, the top, Acts 13 and 14 are about that first missionary journey from Antioch. And from Antioch, they go to churches in the province of Galatia, Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. If you read those two chapters, you'll find them going and doing that. And then when you get to chapter 14, you find them coming back. As they head back to Antioch, they stop back at those cities to see how things are are going. And then in Acts 15, you have the Jerusalem Council that I mentioned a, a bit ago and about how Gentiles should be received, what requirements should be placed, if any, on Gentiles coming into the church. That's the major portion of what Acts 15 is about. But at the end of Acts 15, you have this uh, narrative about Paul and Barnabas. They've already gone on this first missionary journey together. They uh, are going to embark on a second missionary journey, but they have a dispute about whether or not they should take Mark with them. And Paul does not want to take Mark because Mark uh, left them on the first missionary journey. In fact, at the top of page 19, under Acts 13 and 14 there, you see that. Paul Barnabas and John Mark began, but John Mark turned back. And it's because of that that Paul said, let's not take him. Barnabas wanted to take him. Now, Mark is Barnabas' nephew. So there's a family thing uh, going on there. And uh, so they had a dispute, a disagreement about that. And the end of Acts chapter 15 says that that dispute was so sharp, so contentious, that they parted ways. So the second missionary journey then is not Paul and Barnabas, but Paul and, and Silas. And it's because of that. Now, whatever became of that, I, two weeks ago I alluded to the fact that Mark eventually came back into reconciliation with Paul. Because Paul mentions him later in in Colossians chapter 4 in a favorable way. But what about Paul and Barnabas? Well, just interesting to me anyway, is in uh, Acts 11, Acts 11, 24. Now remember, I was in Acts 11 a bit ago. I read to you about the gospel going to Antioch and to the Gentiles there. And then the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to check it out. That's the context of Acts 11.24. But in that verse, it says that that Barnabas was a good man. It describes him as a good man. Now, what does that got to do with this dispute he had with Paul? Well, this. Luke wrote, as I've told you, Acts. And Luke was a companion of Paul. And Luke wrote that description of Barnabas, that he was a good man. After... He wrote the book of Acts after the events of Acts. So you read that in Acts 11, you you think that assessment of Barnabas is being made at that time. No, it's being made later by Luke who wrote it about this guy who's a companion of Paul. So uh, in all probability, that was Paul's uh, view of Barnabas as well, even though they had had this dispute earlier. Uh, later, when Luke writes about Barnabas, he calls him a good man. So it appears that everybody reconciled. 
after this dispute. But it did mean that come, you see on page 19, Acts 16 through 18, the second missionary journey, it's Paul and, and Silas. After the Jerusalem Council, Paul left on a second missionary journey from Antioch, but this time with, with Silas. And there's this pattern that takes place in these missionary uh, journeys. The first one, uh, they did what is recorded in Acts 13 and 14. They went to these cities and they established churches and then they came back through and checked on them and they reported back to the sending church in Antioch. And now he's getting sent out again with Silas by the church in Antioch. And you find, as you read through those three chapters, the same pattern. Paul and Silas go to these cities. They preach the gospel. People are converted. They're gathered into churches. Leaders are established in these in these churches. And then he will check back on them, either in person or often by letter. So on the second missionary journey, he goes to cities, if you were to read Acts 16, 17, 18, he goes to cities like Philippi and Thessalonica. Well, those are books in your New Testament because later he's, he's writing back to them. The book of Philippians and First and Second Thessalonians. So as you read those, you see those names of those books in your New Testament, those are most often associated with these churches that Paul either established directly or an associate of Paul helped to establish. All right, and then you've got Acts chapter 19 through 21. There's a third missionary journey. After visiting Jerusalem and Antioch again, Paul began his third missionary journey, spending most of his time, three and a half years, in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus developed into the third major city for Christianity in addition to Jerusalem and Antioch, and the fourth one would later become Rome. So the four major cities, by the time you get to the end of the first century, as centers of Christianity, were Jerusalem and Antioch and Ephesus and and Rome. I'll talk about Rome a little bit more in in just a bit. So Ephesus, he spends three and a half years there. Timothy becomes the pastor in Ephesus. And Paul uh, wrote a letter to that church that we have in our New Testament called Ephesians. And then there's the journey to Rome, Acts 22 through 28. Paul was arrested in Jerusalem and then taken to Caesarea where he was imprisoned for two years. While there he made his defense before Felix, the Roman governor at Caesarea. He was then tried before the new governor Festus. And because Paul appealed to his Roman citizenship, he was sent to Rome to be tried before Caesar. So he's, he's arrested. He is, he's, being, um, he's on trial. But in his trial, he says, I'm a Roman citizen. I have rights. And one of those rights was to be able to appeal to Caesar. And so he was sent to Rome as, as a result of that. And that brings us to the end of the book of Acts. It's 28 chapters. And in the 28th chapter, in the final two verses of the book of Acts, it says that Paul stayed in Rome for two years in a rented, in a rented house while he awaited uh, the, the verdict as to what was, going to, what was going to happen to him. Now we know eventually what happened to him. He was be he was beheaded, and he wrote. Uh, but he wrote uh, some prison epistles, uh, and uh, you see those listed. You see those listed there. 
So that's the end of the, the book of Acts, is the 28th and final chapter. And then your New Testament is rounded out with the bottom of page 19. The later epistles that uh, John and Jude wrote. The Apostle John moved to Ephesus. A few years later, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. About this time, Jesus' half-brother Jude, another son of Joseph and Mary, we looked at Mark 6 together a couple weeks ago, he wrote the book of Jude. Meanwhile, the Apostle John had moved to Ephesus where he escaped martyrdom and he lived for 25 years. There he wrote the Gospel of John and also the letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, And the same John wrote the final book in your New Testament, bottom of page 19, the book of the book of Revelation. All right, so that ends your that ends your your New Testament. Now, if you take a look at the next page, you've got the Acts and the Epistles, the Acts and the letters of the apostles. And this page gives you a timeline at the top of the books of the New Testament and when those were written. You see that up the very top? You see the timeline with law and grace and the transition between law and grace. Remember I keep kept telling you that the book of Acts is a transition book? It's transitioning from one nation to all nations, from Jews only to Jews and Gentiles, from law to to grace. Well, that's what's being depicted there. The major characters in all of this, James, Peter, Paul, John, and then some of the significant events underneath that timeline. And then um, if you want to fill in blanks in the middle there, feel free to do that. But you'll get those from the previous uh, from the previous page. And then at the bottom you've got a map of the significant cities. And then uh, showing where Paul went on those uh, missionary journeys. All right. Now with that, you come to the end of your New Testament. And you come to the end of the first century. So all of the stuff we've been looking at, and all of the stuff that is recorded in the 27 books of the New Testament, all took place in the first hundred years of this millennium. Um, or of the first millennium. And so the first century, we, we talk about the first century church. That's the church from 33 AD, on the, on the day of Pentecost when it started, to the end of that century. And by the time you get to the end of the first century, all of the apostles have died. And the New Testament ends. And then here we are 2,000 years later, 1,900 years later. So before we move on to part two of our course here, I'd like to just take a little bit of time for us to think about what it would be like to be at the end of the first century as a Christian and the apostles are gone. Because they're the, they're the major players. That's why the fifth book of your Bible is called the Acts of the... But they're gone. Well, who acts now? That act is over. Now what happens? So just think about this. When heresy, false teaching, 
occurred in the first century church. Who who would take care of that? Who would handle that? It would be the apostles, right? Well, now they're gone, so, but but false teaching's not gone. False teaching continues. So now who's going to take care of them? I mean, who are you going to call? Heresy busters. <laughs> but the apostles are gone. So this became this became a problem. This became a problem for the second century church. The first century church had the apostles. The second century church did not. And not only did the second century church not have the apostles, they didn't have in one book all of the writings of the apostles. Yeah. So now you've got false teaching that needs to be refuted. Who's going to do it? Now, just think about who would who would you turn to? And this is who they tended to turn to. People who had hung out with the apostles. So there's a guy in church history, second century guy named Polycarp. There's a name for your next baby. Any of you? <laughs> but he was he was an associate of the Apostle John. <clears throat> okay, that makes that makes that makes sense. We'll these guys knew those guys. So here's what started to happen in the second century as a pragmatic way of trying to address problems that previously the apostles would have addressed, but they're gone. One of the pragmatic developments was this, that uh, an associate of Peter named Ignatius proposed that there should be a difference between pastors and bishops. We've got to have, we don't have any apostles. So we've got to have some guys who are like in charge. So we've got to establish, he proposed bishops that were above, distinct from elders, pastors. Well, uh-oh. Now I understand why, because you've got a practical problem now. The apostles are gone. So who's going to do this? And so these pragmatic suggestions are made and followed beginning in the second century. And one of those suggestions was bishops above pastors. Now, biblically, you can't do the bishops above pastors thing. In fact, Peter himself, Peter himself wrote about that in 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Verses 1 through 5. And here's what he said. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. Now, that's the first two verses of 1 Peter 5. And Peter says, to you elders, I'm appealing. And I'm appealing to you to be shepherds. So you've got him addressing the elders, and he's saying, you guys are shepherds. And you know what the 
You know what the word shepherd is? It's pastor. I, I'm a, so the Greek word is poimen, which is the word for shepherd or pastor. So I'm appealing to you elders, be pastors. And then he says, serving as overseers. And the word that's translated overseers is episkopos. What do we get from that? Episcopalian. And in the King James, um, that is translated not overseer, but bishop. So you could actually translate that. I appeal to you elders, be pastors, serving as bishops. And the point is, the same people are all three of those. Those are three titles for the same people. Elder, pastor, bishop, overseer. And that's Peter. You got the you got the same thing in Acts chapter twenty in your Bible, Acts chapter twenty, where Paul, when he left the city of Ephesus, remember we said he spent three and a half years in Ephesus. When he left there, he gathered the elders and he said, "Be shepherds of the flock that God has entrusted to your care, serving them as overseers." He uses elder, pastor, overseer, bishop. So it's clear in the New Testament that these are not distinct offices. These are three titles for the work of one office. And they each emphasize a little bit different aspect of the work of a leader in God's church, but they're not separate offices. So that's what the Bible says about it, but you come to the first century and you've got people like Ignatius saying, hey, we need somebody to be on top here. Somebody to be above the, the pastors, somebody to be above the churches. So he proposes for the first time a distinction between pastors and bishops. So that's one pragmatic development. You guys could start to see how that's going to rear its head later, right? Mm-hmm. But, but the other thing is <clears throat> that uh, in addition to that, this thing that I said earlier about going to those who were associated with the apostles because they were associated with apostles and investing authority in, in them. Here's what a guy named Clement of Rome, who was an associate of Peter, said. Writing in about just at the end of the first century to combat a problem that had arisen in the city of Corinth, he wrote and admonished obedience to the bishops of the church in Corinth. And he said this, the elders had authority in the church, here's what he said, because they followed directly in the line of the apostles. And because they followed directly in the line of the apostles, they were appointed by and spoke with apostolic authority. Ah. So now we've got bishops, and now we've got people in the line of the apostles. So you've, you know, wondered maybe. So how do we get here from there, you know? From where what you read in the New Testament, what we've been talking about for all of these weeks, how did we get from a fairly simple structure in the New Testament to the very elaborate structure you see, particularly in Roman Catholicism? Well, that's that's 
Those are the seeds of that very early on. Trying to practically address things, so let's put some guys above and let's go to the guys who are directly in the line of the apostles. I'm going to read for you an excerpt from uh, an historian, a church historian. Uh, wrote a book called Christianity Through the Centuries. And this is what he says about the church service of the early Christians. He says, The service which was held on the day of the sun. So the, the church service was held on what day? Started with the reading of, quote, the memoirs of the apostles. Now, what would that be? That would be letters that are in your New Testament. <clears throat> or the, quote, writings of the prophets. What would that be? That would be the Old Testament. So the service was held on the day of the sun, and it started with the reading of the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets for a period, quote, as long as time permits. Let me just stop there, okay? Stop your whining. <laughs> Then it says, an exhortation or homily, that would be sermon, based on the reading was then given by the, quote, president. I like that. Okay? You guys can call me president if you, if you want. The congregation stood for prayer. The celebration of the Lord's Supper followed the kiss of peace. The elements of bread and water and wine were dedicated by thanksgiving and prayers, to which the people responded by an Amen. The deacons then distributed them to the homes of those unable to attend. They finally took up a collection. Then the meeting was dismissed and the people made their way to their homes. It's a pretty simple service, right? Sounds fairly close to what we, what we do now, right? So that's what they were doing. That's what we do. But then you got all this other stuff. So where'd the other stuff come from? Well, the seeds were what I told you. And then you add to it. You add to it the conversion of a prominent Roman citizen. And those seeds now come to full flower. And that prominent Roman citizen was a guy named Constantine. So some of you know a little bit about church history, but Constantine is a pivotal figure in developing what became the Roman Catholic Church. And Constantine in the year 312, 312, uh, was engaged in a battle. And according to his own testimony, he saw in the sky a cross and some wording that said in Latin, at this sign, the sign of the cross, conquer. And he won the battle. And he, according to his testimony, dedicated himself to Christ as a result of that. The following year, 313 AD, he issued something called the Edict of Milan, which, which did away with the persecution of Christianity. Now, it's not until later that Christianity becomes the favored religion of the empire. But at this point... Persecution is no longer allowed. So he gets rid of persecution, and he, the 
the emperor becomes a Christian himself. So let me read to you what uh, another historian, Bruce Shelley, he wrote a book called Church History in Plain Language. Church History in Plain Language. Here's what he says. The Emperor Constantine is one of the major figures of Christian history. After his conversion, Christianity swiftly moved from the seclusion of the catacombs to the prestige of the palaces. The movement started the 4th century. Now, the 4th century is the 300s. Started the 4th century as a persecuted minority. It ended the century as the established religion of the empire. By the end of the 300s, it's the established religion. Thus, the Christian church was joined to the power of the state and assumed a moral responsibility for the whole society. To serve the state, it refined its doctrine and developed its structure. Now, I'm going to read you more about that in a second. But, you know, if you've ever seen, you know, you see the transition, yikes, you see the transition from one pope to another. And you've got CNN, you know, showing you the Vatican, and you're waiting for, what, the the white smoke to come out, right? (laughs) And you've got all the the stuff going on, and you're going, "Where, where did all that come from? You know, I've rummaged through the Bible a few times. Where did all that come from? Notice what Bruce Shelley says here. To serve the state, it refined its doctrine and developed its structure. As the, he goes on, as the emperor became the number one (coughs) member in the church, a simple ceremony no longer sufficed. The pomp and circumstance of the imperial court was adapted to honor the emperor of emperors. Processionals, lights, special dress, and numerous other elements added to the grand setting. So you wonder where all that stuff came from. It came from the Roman Empire. And it was adapted to Christian use after Constantine. And as Shelley goes on to say, Constantine ruled Christian bishops as he did his civil servants, and he demanded unconditional obedience to official pronouncements even when they interfered with purely church matters. So he's a Christian. He's uh, eliminated persecution of Christians, uh, but he's still the emperor. And so you church officials are going to do what I tell you to do. So you have the state involved in church matters. But then a bit later, you had the church involved in state matters. So you don't have the separation. You don't have separation of church and state. The church becomes an arm of the state. Cairns, this guy I mentioned earlier, wrote that book, Christianity Through the Centuries. He says this, Historical events conspired to enhance the reputation of the Bishop of Rome. Rome had been the traditional center of authority for the Roman world for half a millennium and was the largest city in the West. After Constantine moved the capital of the empire to Constantinople in 330. So let me just stop there. So you got Constantine, and Constantine moves the capital from Rome 
to a city that he, in all humility, named Constantinople, which is present-day Istanbul, Turkey. But this is a long way to the east now. So now, meanwhile, back in Rome, who's in charge? And the bishop of Rome became the main man in the West. So after Constantine moved the capital to Constantinople in the year 330, the center of political gravity shifted from Rome to Constantinople. This left the Roman bishop as the single strongest individual in Rome for great periods of time, and the people of that area era, area came to look to him for temporal as well as spiritual leadership whenever a crisis faced them. And then he goes on to give some examples. By the end of the fourth century, says the magazine, um, Christian History Magazine. And it says this, by the end of the fourth century, Christianity had achieved a dominant position in the empire, and Christians felt they could borrow cultural language and ideas more freely than before. So what happened was Christianity was adapted to Rome and the culture of Rome. When in Rome? So you wonder how we got from there to here. That's a big part of it. But i got to give you one other thing that you may not have known. In those historical events conspired, in the words of Cairns, they conspired to enhance the reputation of the Bishop of Rome. Why was there a Bishop of Rome? The reasons I gave earlier. Separating bishops from pastors. So those events conspire to enhance his reputation in this large and influential city. But then later, the, the Bishop of Rome became the Pope. And the power of the papacy, the office of the Pope, became enormous. And here's one of the reasons. One of the reasons that um, it became so powerful. I'm reading now a portion from a guy. I give you these authors like you care, but the book is called The Church of Rome at the Bar of History. And William Webster says this, the papacy could never have emerged without a fundamental restructuring of the constitution of the church and of men's perceptions of the history of that constitution. As long as the true facts of church history were well known, it would serve as a buffer against any unlawful ambitions. However, in the ninth century, now what is the ninth century? The 800s. A literary forgery occurred which completely revolutionized the ancient government of the church in the West. It provided a legal foundation for the ascendancy of the papacy in Western Christendom. This forgery is known as, it's known as the pseudo-Isidorian decretals. Pseudo means false. Isidore was the guy who supposedly wrote these things, these decrees. And they were written around the year 845. The decretals are a complete fabrication of church history. 
They set forth precedents for the exercise of sovereign authority of the popes over the universal church prior to the 4th century and make it appear that the popes had always exercised sovereign dominion and had ultimate authority even over church councils. All right, so you have this thing, and, and this guy, William Webster, is saying it's a forgery. And it fooled a bunch of people. So is he is he some quack saying that this is a forgery? Well, allow me to read for you a quote from another guy. This guy is Johann von Dollinger. And he's a Roman Catholic. He's a Roman Catholic scholar. He's a, a scholar, though, who... Um, who opposed the doctrine of the infallibility of the Pope. A lot of people don't know this, but when the Pope was declared to be infallible, do you know what year that happened? 1870. That's really not that long ago. But it was the year 1870 that the Pope declared the Pope to be infallible. There were a lot of Roman Catholics who said, you can't do that. Even though we're Catholic and even though we believe in the Bishop of Rome and all that, he's not in faith. So we don't believe in that. And Von Dollinger was one of them. And so he was giving the history, and here's what he says. About 845, there arose a huge fabrication. About a hundred pretended decrees of the earliest popes, together with certain spurious writings of other church dignitaries and acts of synods, were fabricated and eagerly seized upon by the Pope at Rome to be used as genuine documents in support of the new claims put forward by himself and his successors. That these documents eventually revolutionized the whole constitution of the church and introduced a new system in place of the old, on that point there can be no controversy among candid historians. That's a Roman Catholic. And at the same time this debate was going on, around 1870, about the infallibility of the Pope. A guy named George Salmon, uh, a Protestant, wrote against the infallibility of the Pope as well, and he says this, In the ninth century, a collection of papal letters was published under the name of Isidore, that's the pseudo-Isidorian, by whom, no doubt, a celebrated Spanish bishop of much learning was intended. In these are to be found precedents for all manner of instances of the exercise of sovereign dominion by the Pope over the churches. The Popes now could hardly claim any privilege but that they would find in these letters supposed proofs that the privilege in question was no more than had always been claimed by their predecessors and always exercised without any objection. On these spurious decretals is built the whole fabric of canon law. The great schoolman Thomas Aquinas was taken in by them. And he was induced by them to set the example of making a chapter on the prerogatives of the Pope an essential part of the treatises on the church. Yet completely successful as was this forgery, I suppose there never was a more clumsy one, he says. These decretal letters had undisputed authority for some 700 years. That is to say, down to the time of the Reformation. And it was at that time that a guy 
named Lorenzo Valla, who was a scholar, did some <laughs> he did some work on these documents that had been floated around and used for 700 years. And he was able to determine that they were not written at the time they claimed to be written. They were not written in the 4th century. That they were actually written in the 9th century. He was the one who was actually able to determine that, and now everyone knows that. But a bit late, right? Because now there is so much power amassed. And not only so much power amassed, so much wealth amassed, that it can't be reversed. And now the mere power, the mere size and wealth is evidence enough for some people to say, this is the true church. But if you don't know the history as to how that wealth was amassed, one of the documents, forged documents, this is the last, this is the last one I'll give you. One of those forged documents is called the Donation of Constantine. The Donation of Constantine. And the donation of Constantine, supposedly Constantine in the 4th century, gave to the Bishop of Rome control not only of the city of Rome, but of large portions of the western part of the empire. Well, okay. It is said that at one time, at the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church owned a quarter of the land in all of Europe. Wow. You know, so over the last several years we've been hearing about all the scandals and the settlements out of court and in the tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. Where does the money come from to settle all these all these suits? The, the Roman Catholic Church is fabulously wealthy. But it's fabulously wealthy because of this kind of stuff. But now it's there. And as I say to some people, the fact that it's there is proof in itself that this is the blessing of God, a sort of prosperity gospel, <laughs> kind of. So that's in part how we got from a simple church in the New Testament, the book of Acts, the stuff you read about, to the things you see today. Now the denominations, that's another matter. That's part of the Reformation and breaking out of the Reformation and all that started out of that. And I have a whole class that we do called What's the Difference? And we have the um, we have the audio recordings for that on our website if you ever care to take a listen. Okay? All right. With that, you can turn to the second tab. We can all celebrate. I'll do a question for you. Yes, sir. Um, so... The Lebanese Domino family that's not Catholic or Greek Orthodox. Mm-hmm. When we go to church with, you know, for weddings and stuff like that, on the wall, like they'd have, there'd always be this picture of Constantine, yeah. like a big painting. Yeah. And then they would have, like, these big portraits of their patriarchs. Yeah. Which is kind of like their pope. Is that the same thing for them? Is that. Yeah. It's, it's very similar. Similar. Because when Constantine moves the uh, empire from Rome, the capital from Rome to Constantinople, you then have two separate churches. you got the Eastern Church and you got the Western Church. And there's supposed to be one church, but 
practices started to diverge. The power of the Bishop of Rome was enhanced because there was a vacuum of power. You didn't have the same kind of political power for the Patriarch of Constantinople that you had for the Bishop of Rome. So there were these differences that developed. And those differences came to a head in the year 1054. 1054. 1054, if you look that up, if you Google 1054 and the Great Schism, that's what it's called. Because it's then that the church in the West and the church in the East split. But just as as an aside, the um, patriarch of Constantinople was a guy named Michael Cellularius. And the Pope, excommunicated Cellularius based on the power given to him by, guess what? The pseudo-Isidorian decrees. (laughs) So he excommunicates. And these churches, now you've got a church in the West and you've got a church in the East, one headquartered in Rome, one headquartered in Constantinople. That church in the East is known as the Eastern Orthodox Church. And And the ethnic varieties of the Eastern Orthodox Church. This is why you can go and see a Russian Orthodox Church or a Hungarian Orthodox Church or a Syrian Orthodox Church or a, that's what you said, right? Yeah, see, the, their, the priest in Charleston where you were up, but he was it was almost all Lebanese and Syrian people at the church and he spoke Arabic fluent Arabic. Yeah. He could write Arabic and stuff. But they're all under the Eastern Orthodox Church. Now, the largest representative of that is the Greek Orthodox. So that's why sometimes it's just called the Greek Orthodox Church. But it's actually the Eastern Orthodox Church. And it's got these ethnic varieties. Hungarian, Russian, and so on. But the patriarch in Constantinople has never claimed to be infallible. So that's one of the, it's one of the huge differences. But you know, the Pope in Rome was claiming all of these powers because of these false documents. Excommunicated this guy. That's what that is. I'm curious about that. Yep. Alright, next section. We have finished the survey of the body. Now, uh, for today in a week or two, we're going to look at interpreting the body. And then our final section is applying the body. So page one of that tab number two. You guys have that? Uh, yeah, everybody got it? Yeah, that, that handout doesn't have it. But you've got it there. Okay. The Bible has both divine and human authors. <coughs> so let me stop there. <laughs> We're not going to get very far, are we? If we stop every five words. The Bible has both divine and human authors. <coughs> All right, you guys know that. You know that the Bible was composed by humans, but ultimately behind that composition is the ultimate author God. All right, easy enough. Except here we want to learn how to interpret the Bible. And as we're going to see in that box, in fact, you see in the box there, the goal of the reading study process is to understand the author's intended meaning. So if the Bible has both divine and human authors, that raises a question. If I want to get the author's intended meaning, and you've got both God and 
the human author involved, then whose meaning do I am I trying to get? Yes. Um, since since God's Holy Spirit breathed every word into the human authors, it's, it's God's intended meaning. Okay. So it's not that I want Paul's meaning. Do I want Paul's meaning or God's meaning? Or Peter's meaning or God's meaning or David's or Isaiah's, right? If I've got Paul's meaning, I've got God's meaning. Now, right answer, good answer. That's the right answer. But it's not the answer that a lot of people understand about the Bible. Because if what I just said is true, if once you get Paul's meaning, you've got God's meaning, then that means you're going to interpret the Bible like you would interpret communication from one human being to another. Because I'm trying to get Paul's meaning. And Paul writes grammar. And in, and in paragraphs. And in context. But if you don't think that's the process, if you think I've got to get to God's meaning, how do you get to God's meaning? What's the way that you interpret God talk? I don't know. But it's not the way you interpret my talk. It's not the way I interpret your talk. So people come up with esoteric kinds of ways to interpret the Bible. And part of the reason that they do that is because they separate the divine author, God, from the human author. And they use some kind of mystical approach to try to get God's meaning. When, in fact, what they need to do is use the normal approach to get Paul's meaning or Peter's meaning or whoever wrote the book. And then they've got God's meaning. But if you don't do that, if you don't believe that, if you don't make that, then you're going to say, there's a deeper meaning here. There's what Paul said, but then there's what God's really trying to get across. Now, I'm glad that some of you are kind of looking at me like, what? Because that means you haven't heard us do this here. But I am telling you, people do it all over the place. So let me give you a few examples. I had a friend uh, that I was in high school with who is now and has been for over 30 years since we graduated from high school has been an evangelist. You guys know what an evangelist is? An evangelist is a guy who has five suits and five sermons. (laughs) So this friend of mine, when we were in high school, determined as a teenager that he wanted to be an evangelist. Now, he had these evangelists that he would listen to on their tapes back in the day, and he was enamored with these guys. And they were these revivalist kind of evangelists, and they would you know, walk all over back and forth and yell and sweat, and they were very theatrical, and they would get people to make commitments and walk the aisles, and he was just enthralled with that. And he would listen to these tapes, and he would, in his preaching, he would mimic what they do. Now, this group that he was listening to was a group, and there's a bunch of them in the U.S., that really didn't believe in education. The Lord calls you, go out there and do it. And this this friend of mine, we were very good friends. Uh, I was the best man in his wedding. Uh, but he started to get involved in that. 
and mimicking them and started preaching, started preaching in a circuit of churches. And he got to be very good at this. But John had a very difficult time in school. As a matter of fact, the school I graduated from, where I met him, he didn't graduate from that school because it was too hard. So he went somewhere else. Now, I'm not saying that to demean him. I'm just saying that was he had a hard time academically. That's going that, If you have a hard time academically, you're going to have a hard time interpreting the Bible. Okay? But that wasn't a problem for John because these evangelists have an anointing from God. And that's what he became convinced of. I've got an anointing from God, just like these other guys. So this is the way John would interpret the Bible. And he does to this very day. Uh, I used to get his newsletter. And he sent me his newsletter. And he would always have a little sermonette in there. And the sermonette in this particular one was from Genesis chapter 6. And Genesis chapter 6 says, in the King James, it says, In those days there were giants in the land, men of renown. That's the King James. Now that's, and then it says, if you read the context, the sons of daughters cohabitated with the, the, da- the, the daughters of men and the sons of God and all of that. And uh, so there's a, you have to do some work to interpret that. But John says in his newsletter, let me, and this is the word he uses, spiritualize this passage. Now, do you know what he means when he says spiritualize the passage? <laughs> when it says, in those days there were giants in the land, men of renown, I'm now going to give you a spiritual application of this. And so he proceeds to go on and talk about how we need to have giants in our day. Men who stand up for the Lord. Now, do we need men who stand up for the Lord? Yeah. Does Genesis chapter 6 have anything to say about that? No. So that's using a passage and then getting God's spiritual meaning out of it. And there's all kinds of preaching and teaching that happens that way all the time. Let me give you another example. Hold that. One of the chief proponents of this approach was a guy that I think I've mentioned to you guys before named Jack Hiles. And Jack Hiles was one of John's heroes. And Jack Hiles preached this way his entire career. Preached the Bible this way. I've got a, some of Jack Hiles' books on my shelf. So if you ever if you go in my office, you'll see these books. And there are some books that, that are only there for me to give illustrations of how things are not to be done. <laughs> okay. Most of them are books that are edifying. Some of them are... I've got Jack Hiles' books. <clears throat> And in one of the books, he has this sermon from Genesis chapter 1 and verse 16. Genesis 1.16. Now here's what Genesis 1.16 says. And he made the stars also. That's the entire verse. And he made the stars also. Now let us, let's together quickly do a quick interpretation of that. The way that's worded, and he, the he would be who? God. And God made, God created, the stars also, that is, in addition to some other stuff that he had made. And if you were to read Genesis 1 through 15, we know that we've got day one, the evening and the morning, and so on. And he made the stars also. That's all right. We've interpreted that verse. 
Jack House has a whole sermon on that. And here are the three points of the sermon. God cares about little people. God cares about little projects. God cares about little places. And he made the stars also. Do you know where he got that from? Remember that in Genesis 1 it says, he made the greater light to rule the day. But you might not be the great light. You might just be a little star. But God cares about little stars. And God cares about little people and little projects and little places. Now let me ask you, does God care about little people, little projects, and little places? Does Genesis 1.16 say anything about it? None. Nada. Zero. You could, I heard John MacArthur say this years ago, with that approach to preaching, you could literally preach little Bo Peep. <laughs> little. She was little. Do you feel little today? Do you feel insignificant? God cares about you. Do you not do you not have any friends? She must have not had any friends. Her name was Bo. Okay. And she lost her sheep. Okay? So you could just make hay with that. You could make people cry if you're really good at it. Okay? This is the kind of preaching that lots, lots of people do. And I might add, lots of Baptists do. John's a Baptist, this former friend of mine. We had to part ways early on in our 20s. It was very sad. Because he was going that route, I was going into ministry, and we were not going to be, we we're not on the same page. And really, he mutilates God's word. He's on the board of something called the sword of the Lord. He's on the board. John's on the board. He is a big shot in these conferences. If you were to look him up, he was, he's, he's had a full itinerary, and that's the kind of preaching he's done to this day. Okay, Sorry, Yula. Do you remember what you were going to say? Um, I was going to add, so that's why it's good not to read uh, study Bibles by certain people. So how do you differentiate? Yeah. Well, study Bibles can be good, but, yeah, you want somebody who's studied. Right. So uh, the NIV Study Bible is a very good study Bible. The MacArthur Study Bible is a very good study Bible. Uh, so those are the top two that I'd recommend because those were put together by people who've actually studied and have actually studied the the context. Okay. All right. So we are next week and the week after that we're going to be looking at how to interpret the Bible. But Phyllis is right. If you want to get the author's intended meaning, God doesn't have a meaning different than Paul's. So the method that we're going to see as to how to get the meaning is going to be using standard methods of putting grammar together, putting it in context, and all of that, so we can see what Paul or Peter or Isaiah or whoever wrote it intended to convey. And once we get that, we've got God's meaning. Okay? All right. We'll pick it up there next week.